You can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. I usually don't do this. I like to just jump in and read the passage, but I just want to give you some of my logic of why we're heading uh, here just briefly um, for Palm Sunday and then for Easter Sunday as well. Um, So we just came out of the book of Job where we looked at the shadow of Christ in the book of Job. And I just wanted us to move from looking at the shadow of Christ before we get to Easter to just beholding the substance, to just beholding Christ in all His glory. So I'm going to look uh, real quick. um, We'll look down to verse 5 of chapter 17. So John 17, starting in verse 1, and we'll we'll go down to verse 5. This is the word of the Lord. When Jesus had spoken these words... He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him all authority, him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray. Father, there is just a particular glory and a particular just beauty that you have just taken me up in in this passage this week. So God, give me the grace to show everyone here what you've shown me even this week, just the beauty and the splendor that you are. God, it's like describing the Grand Canyon. It's like describing something that's so beautiful we can't even fathom it. So I pray that you'd help me where words fall short. By your Spirit, would you bring life where there is none? Would you restore what is broken? And would you make known what is unclear? We can do nothing apart from you, so we pray that you'd help us now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, today, today is Palm Sunday. Now, Palm Sunday is, is the what we celebrate the week before Easter Sunday, because it's the Sunday that Jesus would have entered Jerusalem, and He would have entered with palm branches. People would have, that's what we call Palm Sunday. They would have been been praising Him, saying, like we read this morning, Hosanna, blessed is the Son of David. The King has come. And you may be thinking, you may be wondering, like, that's not all that we see, see Him do. He starts to talk about then in chapter 12 of John about an hour that's coming. Now, I want you to think about, now where, where I'm picking up today in the story uh, is right before his crucifixion. It's actually right before his betrayal. He's getting ready to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. So you think about the hour that is the darkest hour for the Lord Jesus. And you'd wonder like, what, maybe you've never wondered this, I wonder this, what do you think was on Jesus' mind when he was going into his darkest hour? Now, we, we, we don't see often the prayers of Jesus. It's said often Jesus prayed, but this is the longest prayer we see of the Lord Jesus, recorded prayer in this way. And you wonder, what was Jesus consumed with? 
What was he consumed with in his thoughts during that time? And what was he praying for? What was he praying for as he approached the cross? And I would say it was simply this. It was glory. It was glory for himself, and it was glory for God's name. Now, it's surprising. I think it's surprising that we don't hear often. We're told often, Jesus went away to pray. We're here from the disciples. Oh, Jesus, teach us to pray. But when you hear Jesus pray, it sounds a lot different than the way me and you pray. Like, listen to the first words. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. People have said of John 17 that this is the equivalent of the burning bush of the Old Testament. This is the New Testament equivalent of Moses encountering the burning bush because it is just so beautiful. It's so glorious. It's almost like, and I'll just encourage you, if you've never read John 17, read the entirety of the prayer. We, we don't have time to do that today. But the passage, I would argue, is the very heart of Christ. And in His darkest moments, He wasn't praying, Lord, get me out of this. He wasn't praying, me, 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 like, get me out of this. I don't want to do this. I, I'm, not, I'm not here for this. He says, Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, he just told, if it, just as, for context, uh, right before this, from John 14 to John 16, we see Jesus, what's called the upper room discourse. Jesus sits down, and he, he has the Passover. He celebrates the Passover with his disciples. He washes their feet. He tells them that he's leaving. But as he's going to the Garden of Gethsemane, we hear this prayer uttered. Now listen to it. Notice what he, he starts with. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words, that's, that's the upper room discourse, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, if you're taking notes, uh, you can see that first point there is, is simply just Christ's glory. Christ's glory, and I'm describing it as Jesus' desire is for, Christ, or for God's glory. It's Christ's glory, and it's Jesus' desire is for God's glory. Now, Jesus knew the path he was on, yet his mind was consumed. It was consumed with bringing glory to God. I want you to think about for a second your most sorrowful moment. What, would, what does your prayer sound like during that time? I'll tell you what mine sound like. Mine focus on one central subject, me, myself, and I. I'm just concerned with, Lord, get me out of this situation. The situation's hard. It's just centered on me. But I want you to notice how Jesus' prayer doesn't sound anything like that. He doesn't say, Lord, this is going to be a difficult situation. I really don't want to deal with this. No, no, no. He says, Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. He knew he was going to be betrayed. He knew he was going to be crucified. So I want us to consider, so this Christ's glory, I want us to consider that first element, though, the hour has come. So the hour has come, and I would say it's the cross in view. And to do that, I want you to turn back real quick, just a page or two, to, to John 12, just, to keep, just so we're all on the same page. John 12, and I want us to consider that same phrase, of the hour has come, because he tells the Father, Father, the hour has come. Now, what's he mean by that? 
Well, the hour in John's gospel is simply, uh, it's said actually all throughout John's gospel. Here, I'll just give you an example. John seven thirty, he says this, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And that's said, I don't, I, I don't have a number on that, but it's said a bunch throughout John's gospel. It's said over and over again, like, the hour has not come, the hour has not come, but all of a sudden, the mic drops, and Jesus is saying here in chapter 12, the hour's here. The, the hour's here, and you know when that hour started? Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday was the day that that hour started. This is, that's what Jared read this morning for us in that longer section. Jump down to verse, verse 23 of chapter 12. Listen to what Jesus says. The Greeks were coming to him, and something clicked in Jesus' mind, and he basically says, look what he says in verse 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, I don't know, we, we could sit and wonder all day long why, why Jesus now saw that the hour was here, but for whatever reason, we can talk more about that, but I'm going to skip over that. So I want us to consider, though, what does it mean that the Son of Man is glorified? Because when I think about glorification, I think I have in my mind a picture of a king coming into town and he's being exalted, right? We, we, we have trumpets, we have kind of what we just saw, palm branches, he's riding in on a donkey. But notice what Jesus says, he describes the glorification in verse 24 of chapter 12, right down below verse 23. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus uses the analogy of a grain of wheat dying to show us something of the kind of death he's going to die. He's saying that if a grain of wheat doesn't die, then it doesn't produce fruit and there's no glory that comes from it in that way. But he compares his glorification to a grain of wheat that falls into the earth and dies. Now notice what he jumped down just a few verses to verse 31 and see what he then goes on to say. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So now we're starting to see more clearly like what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm going to be glorified, and that glorification is going to the cross. It's going to the cross. And I want you to think for a second how inverted Jesus' kingdom is. When I talk about glorification, it looks a whole lot more like palm branches and trumpets and exaltation, right? But Jesus, he's saying, when I'm going to be glorified, I'm going to go and I'm going to die for humanity. I'm going to die for for people, and that's going to be my glorification. Now, jump back to chapter 17, and I want you to consider then, so this is where we're almost picking up or this is almost like a bookmark at some level of the hour, this idea of the hour has come. It bookmarks chapter 12 and chapter 20, or 17. And I want you to see then the glory of the sun. And he says in verse 1, the glory of the sun. And I want you to see the worthiness of Jesus. The hour has come, he says in verse 1, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And we see the glory of the sun. Jesus asked the Father to glorify him for the purpose that the Son may glorify the Father. Now, he asked something that should give us pause to think. If I stood up here on a Sunday morning and I said, Father, glorify me, 
I hope you would all come up, sta- up front, pick me up, and throw me out. <laughs> Maybe not literally, but in some ways that's what you'd go do. Because he's saying something here that is equivoc- he's equivocating himself with God. He's showing, look, notice what he says. He says, Father, glorify me, glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. Now, I want to I use an example from Exodus to, give, to show you what I mean by this. When Moses, in Exodus, prays, he says in verse, chapter 33, verse 18, he, he says of God, he asks him, please show me your glory. And now, if you remember where this is at, it, it happens at a point where God begins to reveal himself more and more to Moses on Mount Sinai. But the way that God responds to Moses is striking. He tells him in chapter 34, 6 through 7, he tells Moses that God, he can't see God's face, but the Lord will pass before him and declare his name. And this is what he says, verse 6 of chapter 34. He says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And the great question of the Old Testament is how will God both be loving, compassionate, merciful, and yet forgiving? How? How can He be both at the same time? How will God both be merciful and loving while not clearing the guilty? And this is where we get basically the majority of the Old Testament, that, that we see the sacrificial system, we see the way that God interacts with sinful people to not consume them. But then we turn to the New Testament, and we start to see Jesus say things like, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Jesus is saying here, Father, give me glory so that I may glorify you. And what he's doing is he's equating himself with, with God. Now, now, an objection that's often given to Christianity, often given, people will say, you'll, you'll say, well, Jesus died. He died for sinners. And people will say, well, how, how would Jesus bear the sins of the whole world? In Exodus 34, this paradox of a loving, merciful, compassionate, forgiving God, and this idea of how could one man bear the sins of the whole world, those two questions come together, and they have a name, and His name's Jesus. The answer is to both those questions, that if one man, is that that one man was worth more than all of the world combined. I want you to consider this for a second, that Jesus to die for the sins of all the world. If you put all the sins on one side of a scale and put Jesus on the other, he's worth more than all of them. He's worth more than me and you and all of us, all humanity combined. He's worth more. I love what Jim Hamilton went on to say. He said, the cross will display his ability to satisfy the almighty wrath of the Father whose worth and dignity and authority and justice are comprehensive in order for Jesus to satisfy 
the Father's justice against sin, justice owed for all sin of all his people at all times in all places, the worth of Jesus must equal that of the Father himself. And this, my friends, is profound. This is when we start to realize this Jesus is not like me and you. He is, he is, he is strikingly different than me and you. If you're taking notes, just see at the top of the page, this is what I want you to see from today. If nothing else, you get nothing else, get this. Since Christ is supremely worthy, then nothing is worth comparing to the joy of knowing him. I want to say that one more time. Since Christ is supremely worthy, then nothing is worth comparing to the joy of knowing him. The worth of Christ is exponentially more than all humanity because he's equal with the Father in that way, which is why he can pray, Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And here's just a simple application for you. This means that when me and you walk in sin, in any, any kind of sin, sin, all it is, at some level, is a temptation, or it's a, it's a luring of us to believe that something is worth more than Christ. I want to say that one more time. This means that every sin that looks pleasable, it, it, what it does is it, it sh- tries to show us that it's more worthy or worth more than Christ. And brothers and sisters, I want to tell you that the next time you find yourself tempted towards sin, I want you to consider, I want you to stop and consider the worth and the beauty of Christ. Because the one who's worth more than all of the world, all humanity, all of them combined, what's he do for us? He goes and he dies for us. He goes and he dies for us. So I want you to consider that the next time you find yourself being tempted. So it's Christ's Christ, uh, so we've seen Christ's glory. I want us to look now, look down to the second point there, Christ's authority. And it's Jesus' desire to give life. So notice what he does there. He says in verse, verse 1 and 2, and now I have a different translation there up, up in front of you, just as I think it's helpful sometimes to go back and forth. He says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son so that your son may glorify you. Then he says, just as, verse 2, you have given him authority over all humanity, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. Now, Jesus is asking that the Father glorify the Son in in the same way that he has already given him all authority over all humanity. So I want you to see all authority. And it's that he may give life. Now, the founders of the United States of America knew of a principle called, that we would call later separation of power. They knew that there were, there were different, that's why we have three branches of government, so that we, no one gets all the power at once. We were able to share power in that way. And as the old quote, there's an old line that goes, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I'll say that one more time. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. And we can give an endless list of examples of countries and nations and leaders who've gained absolute power and have destroyed, utterly destroyed nations. Mao Zedong in China, Hitler, Germany, 
And the examples go on and on and on. But I want you to notice what Jesus is saying here in verse 2. He says, since just as you have given him authority over all flesh or all humanity, I want you to notice, how does Jesus deal with all authority? Jesus is given all authority, and what's he do with it? Does he go and abuse it? Does he go and put people under his thumb? No, no, no. He does two things. I would say he does two things. He's first gracious, and he's second life-giving. Let's, let's deal with gracious, though, first. He says in verse 2, Just as you have given him authority over all humanity, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. So the first is gracious. When every other person is given great power, they abuse it. They exploit it. They use others under their rule for their own gain and their own benefit. But Jesus says that his purpose with his authority is not to give, is not to, not to steal or take from them, but to give. He's, he's abundantly. He's saying, I have all control, but my desire is to do the Father's will. I have all control, but I'm going to use my control to bless others under my care. I have all control, but I'm going to graciously pour out love and compassion. So that's the first one. He's gracious. Secondly, he's life-giving. He's life-giving. Notice what he says again in verse 2. He says, just as you've given him him authority over all humanity, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. Jesus will be able to give life to others because his death will pay their penalty for sin. He will be able to give life because of the requirements to give life have been met. And so notice, I want us to look at then more in depth what this life is. So we get to eternal life. Eternal life, knowing the Father and the Son. Now, I want you to think about this gift. Notice what he says again in verse 2. He says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. I want you to picture eternal life as being a giant gift under a Christmas tree. Okay? Everyone loves Christmas. We love going to Christmas, and we love seeing a big gift with our name on it. So picture you're at Christmas. You're sitting there eating some hot cocoa. There's a box that's eloquently wrapped that says eternal life on the outside of it. It's got a nice bow tied on it. Wrapping paper is crisp. It's not that cheap wrapping paper. It's that real good wrapping paper. You know what I mean? It's eternal life, right? But what we conceptualize when we think what's in that box is very, very important. I had a vision growing up, not a, not a literal vision, sorry. I had an idea, it was like that maybe, it's not be super weird, with, I had a vision. No, I, had, I had an idea of eternal life growing up, that eternal life, the sum total of eternal life was just one day I would sit with my grandma and be with my family and we would all be happy and there would be streets of gold. So I want to I address three different views that I would describe of what we view is in that box. And the first I'm describing, flip this around, the first is actually goodies, the goodies view, quote-unquote. Not the spiritual view. We'll look at the spiritual view in a second. I would describe the goodies view, though, as this view of the gift under the tree. What we think is in that box is living forever, or it's eternal paradise. 
Basically, I would put it, this, this view sees everlasting life as Disneyland on every single day. It's like rides, rides at Disneyland. It's just eating good food. We're with family. And if this is our view of eternal life, I would argue you would be deeply disappointed by what Jesus says about it. If our view of eternal life is simply that we're just going to get goodies someday, long term, we're going to be very, very disappointed by what we see Jesus say. So that's the one false view of what we think is in it. We think candies, we think all sorts of other things. The second is what I would call the spiritual view. The spiritual view. Now, this, this second view, is, I call it a spiritual view because it can be summarized as viewing eternal life as something entirely in the future. It, basically, it would be as if you went and opened that box that, for, around the Christmas tree and there was just a ginormous IOU slip. Like, <laughs> I'm not sure if you've ever had like, an instance like that at Christmas where you open something and it's like, I'll give you this later. This isn't the present itself, but it's the gift here. I owe you t- to be received later. If that is our view... Of, of eternal life, I will argue that we have a deeply insufficient view of what Jesus is talking about for eternal life. We think eternal life has nothing to do with how I live in the everyday. And I would say that also falls very, very short. Now, I want to be very clear. Eternal life, ultimately, yes, it will be in the future because it's eternal. <laughs> okay, so but let's be clear. Etern- eternality doesn't have a future. Okay, eternality is eternality. <laughs> so, okay, so Move on from that. Verse, now look back real quick at verse 3, what he says. He says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, just as you have given him authority over all humanity so that he may give eternal life to everyone whom you've given him. Now, this is eternal life. This is very important we catch this because this is the sub- substance of what's in that box. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Did, did you catch that? I think if you read that verse to the majority of Americans, they'd be like, oh, it'd be like the, like the kid who opens the Christmas box and they think it's shirts. It's like, oh, goodness, clothes. I got clothes for Christmas. But brothers and sisters, this is the greatest thing he could ever tell us. That the gift of eternal life is to know and love God the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And I would argue, through the Holy Spirit. Jesus summarizes the essence of eternal life as knowing the Father and the Son. The essence of eternal life finds its beginning, its middle, and its end in the knowledge of God. Jesus is offering a Christmas present under the tree that when we open it, it's God himself who pops out. Now, that may, does, that may be, for some of you, that may be like, well, okay, sure. What, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Now, I want you to notice something. This isn't just knowledge. Some of you are probably like, well, I don't really like to learn very much, so is this just going to be like a test for eternity? Is that what you're saying? Like, is this going to be like Sunday school on repeat? Like, no, 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 no. This knowledge that God, of God is not simply intellectually knowing. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, he's just exceptional. He says in this, about the knowledge. He said, it is comparable to the knowledge which a man has who's in love with a woman. It's not possible for him to sit down and write out a philosophical account of his love. He cannot explain it rationally. He knows it, but here's his reason. 
the great love with which reason and love and knowledge do not understand. That is it. We know because we have love and love recognizes love and love attracts love. The little lamb cannot give you a rational reason why it should pick out one sheep as its mother, but it knows that sheep is his mother. The Christian's knowledge of his Lord is something like that. I would argue it's the same kind of thing, it's the same kind of knowledge of the difference of writing out a description of my wife versus holding my wife's hand. It's the difference of saying, my wife, she is a five foot five, uh, brown hair, brown eyes, yep, sitting there writing it all out, yep, there she is, that's what she looks like, versus literally embracing her and seeing her and loving her and, and, and looking at her and knowing that's my wife. And this is what's offered for us. Eternal life is not just something that we were waiting someday in a magical land for. It's not a bunch of goodies. It's knowing and loving God. Since Christ is supremely worthy, nothing is worth comparing to the glory of knowing Him, to the joy of knowing Him. Look at, listen to what Jesus, if you jump down in chapter 17, to verse 24, notice what He says later. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, now that's, I want to be clear, we're not getting to this, but that's all of us. That's Christians from all time. He says, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. It says that when Jesus returns, we will stand and we will marvel at the glory and the splendor that he is. Again, Lloyd-Jones, exceptional in this way. He says, now eternal not only concerns duration. It does mean that, but it means something else. Eternal life means a life of a certain kind of quality. Life in this world is not only a temporary limited life, actually, as far as death is concerned, it is always, in a sense, a living death. Life outside God is not life. It is existence. For there's a difference between the two. And he goes on and he says, eternal life always carried that suggestion. Apart from God, life, as we call it, is really death. It's really death. It's really just existence. This is exactly what Paul talks about in another place in Philippians 3. He says the exact same thing. He says, but whatever gain I had, now he he talks about all the things that he did in his former life of Judaism, and he says, all those things, he said, I count them like rubbish. Why? Why could he count all of this pedigree that he had as rubbish? He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Why? Why on earth would he do that? Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or as dung in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And brothers and sisters, we really need to reckon with what do we find worthy? And what do we find that competes for for our love, our love and our affection for Christ in that way? Since Christ is supremely worthy, then nothing is worth comparing to the joy of knowing Him. 
Now, I want us to wrap up. I want us to head, head in that direction. Let's go to this last point. And I want us to see Christ's joy. Christ's joy. And it's Jesus' desire for his joy. Now, I want you to think about for a second. What do you think Jesus' posture of heart was going to the cross? You think it was annoyance? Was he, was he frustrated? Ah, these stinking people. I've got to bear all their sins. Was he, was he worried? And I, I, we chuckle. I mean, I know we all chuckle. I chuckle at that when I say that. But I think often it's the same reason not why when I sin, I'm slow to come to Christ. Why? Because I think he's frustrated at me. Is he annoyed? Was he worried? Was he fearful? What if I told you that Christ's heart was filled with joy? I want you to think about that, how profound that is for a second. That Christ's heart considered the joy of experiencing communion he shared within the triune Godhead as better than anything else he could have experienced. So he says in verse 4, jump down to verse 4. He says, I have glor-, chapter 17, verse 4. I, have gl- I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So I want you to see this section of I have glorified you, that you may glorify me. And at the heart of Christ is the joy of obedience to his Father in heaven. Jesus was completely faithful to the Father at every point. Unlike Adam, our first father, Christ was completely faithful. Unlike Israel's rebellion in the wilderness, Christ was completely faithful. Unlike the priesthood which stood defiled, our, pre- our high priest stood blameless. Unlike the unruly kings of the past, our great king wields his ultimate power perfectly. And he says, verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having finished, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That's what, actually what the, that same word for accomplished is the same word that we get for finished. The NIV actually translated it in verse 4. He says, I, brought, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. Our faithful high priest, supremely worthy, supremely faithful, supremely able to bring about salvation. And what does he do? He goes to the cross with joy. He not only goes to the cross with joy, but then he cries out from the cross, it is finished, it is done, the work is over, there's nothing more to be done. And he bowed his head, verse 30, and gave up his spirit. When we hear Christ calling out from the cross, we need to hear he has been faithful in his life, he's been faithful in his death, and he will be faithful in his resurrection. Christ is supremely worthy, and nothing is worth comparing to the joy of knowing him. Now, you may wonder, well, Daniel, how do you see joy in what he just said? Now, now notice what he says in verse 5. What he says in verse 5, and this is where we'll land. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's in a moment like this that we approach Jesus and we wonder, this guy's not like me. <laughs> this guy's this guy's like this guy's on a different plane than I am. He says, "Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed." And I would argue it's for the joy set before him. It's Jesus's joy and ours. And all throughout the gospels we read, well maybe let me just ask you this, just as a way to think about it. What was God doing? before Genesis 1-1. 
Before God created everything, what was God doing? Was he just like chilling? Was he hanging out? What was he doing? I would argue that God, prior to creating everything, was enjoying in perfect, unbroken harmony himself. And that should shape us. And you may be like, well, why do you see that? Notice what he says in verse 5. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Equally giving honor to one another, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, giving honor in unbroken fellowship to one another. And Jesus' prayer is that the Father would glorify him in the same way he has done in eternity past. And then we hear from the author of Hebrews when he tells us, hey, look at, the, look at the hall of faith, look at these people who've been faithful. Then he tells us this last piece in Hebrews 12 too. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. We have a Savior who's utterly unlike me and you. If I would have had to bear your sins, I would be frustrated. But our Lord Jesus, he bore our sins and was joyful and endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. And then he says, jump down to verse 13 of chapter 17. And he says, but now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Brothers and sisters, the hope of the gospel is not just for some distant day, long into the future. The eternal life that Christ has come to offer is for right now. The essence of it is for right now. And so we need to ask the question, are we clinging to the Lord Jesus? Are we holding Him? Are we supremely valuing Him? Since Christ is supremely worthy, then nothing is worth comparing to the joy of knowing Him. So I want us to take a, take a uh, moment of just reflection, and you can reflect or you can respond in any way that God's prompting you to do so. Um, I just want us to consider what we heard today. And I, if, you, if you wonder more about what John 17 talks about, I just encourage you this week, read through John 17. There is, there's just a beautiful glory in this passage. So I want us to just take a minute uh, to, to, to reflect, but, but respond in any way the Lord's prompting you to do so.